This is Air Commander Starscream, and you are listening to Half Measures. Uh, Half Measures? Sounds like Megatron's battle strategy. <laughs> This episode of Half Measures is brought to you by Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Hi, I'm John Champion, co-host of Mission Log. While Daniel and Paul are doing a bang-up job covering the wide world of pop culture, we're talking Star Trek, one episode at a time, over at Mission Log, looking for morals, meanings, and messages. In fact, there are a whole lot of other shows at podcast.roddenberry.com for you to choose from science, feminism, even daily news, and all stops in between. Boldly go and find us. When you're done here, of course. Again, that address is podcast.roddenberry.com, and we will be delighted to have you trek us out. Kia and welcome to episode 65 of the Half Missions Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the king of Kapiti, Paul Kanawa. How you doing, pal? Listen, fella, I care about one thing and one thing only. Your wheelie bin. I'll tell you, Paul, there's been no updates on this wheelie bin. And it, I lie awake at night thinking about it. And I, I talk to Samara about it and I'm like... I'm convinced the wheelie bin company's taking it. Like if I if I was stealing wheelie bins, I would wait till the day they've been emptied, then I'd go down the street stealing empty ones, or I would tip all the rubbish out, then steal it. I'm just it makes no sense to me. It's it's an unsolved mystery. And what the uh, listeners can't see that I can see is that you're you're coming to us from a new location as well. So you've moved. The move is done. I've moved. Um, look, I've got new rants, Paul. I've got um, the wheelie bin is long forgotten. I, I've got new people on my hit list now, and I, I I'm of two minds about whether I should talk about it on the pod. Uh, one, it might be entertaining, but two, I might sort of segregate some of our listeners, and um, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You, you, you've unlocked the Aladdin's cave. So, go. look, here's the thing. Here's the thing, fella. So. I want to know with movers. This is this is about move. When I say secret, like if you're a mover and you listen to this podcast, you can stop. Move along. This is not for you. <laughs> I want to know, Paul. Why? Like, why do movers need to use the toilet so often? Like, I swear to God, the people that moved us <laughs> maybe used the toilet about fifteen times during the day. Like, it was relentless. Like every five minutes, they're like, "Excuse me, who's the toilet?" Excuse me, can I use the toilet? It's too much. It's too much. I and even worse, when you moved to your new house, this is going to be like a real weird Daniel thing, but I'm like, this is my new house. I want to christen the toilet. I don't want the movers asking me every five seconds, can I use your toilet? It's so annoying. I think it's important that these movers stay well hydrated, Dan, the type of work that they're doing, and obviously that leads to them needing to use the, the toilet every now and then. So I think you just need to understand that. Actually, you're a, you're, that's actually very true. That's <laughs> very true. Like They are doing a lot of hard work, and they're doing it day in and day out. Like, that's right. Actually, I take it back. Respect to the movers. Like I, could, I couldn't do it, but still, I don't know. It, There's it would annoy about that, it that upsets me. It would annoy the hell out of me as well. I don't like anyone in my house, if I'm honest. 
That's the only reason I agreed to do this podcast is so that we could do it over the internet, remember? It's weird too because I feel like with movers, I, they're always like commenting on stuff as well. Like, oh, who, who's this Lego? Who, who likes the Lego? Oh, who's into the collectibles? Oh, whose computer is that? You know, it's like, it's like, hold on, hold on. Do you need to go to the toilet again? Like, let, let, let's minimize the question asking and just get, get on with the moving. Do you need to go to the toilet again? Only the best for this podcast, Dan. Only the best. So, 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 so anyway, it's, it's been a wild time with the wheelie bin situation, the movers. It's been hectic, but um, I've, I've moved house. I'm all settled. I'm going to be getting back under things, but I am coming into this week very light. So I'm going to I'm going to throw the torch over to you, Paul. What have you been watching? Well, I'll tell you now, unless you want me to serve you with a Reg 15 fella, I suggest you start watching some content. i got a couple of things, a couple of things that I watched other than the things we watched together. And I'll start us off with something which I know you've seen before as well, uh, the movie 1917. Um, so... This one is uh, obviously 1917. As a regiment assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory, two soldiers are assigned to race against time and deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking straight into a deadly trap. So I'm really late coming to this one. A lot of hype on this movie. And this is one I've wanted to watch for a while. Sam Mendes as writer-director. Very excited. There are some incredible scenes in this movie. And I know sometimes I talk a lot on this podcast about um, like the, the uninterrupted shots, you know, the continuous shots. And, and Sam Mendes does some really amazing ones in this. The trenches that these guys are walking through. I don't know how much you remember about this movie, Dan, but the trenches that these guys walk through, they just go on forever. And I actually looked it up because I thought this, this has got to be something special. And there's over 5,200 feet of trenches that were dug for this movie, which is... Uh, about a mile long so it's it's absolutely incredible and the longest single continuous shot they had in the movie with no break with the camera at all eight and a half minutes it's there was a lot of stuff in this around you know cinematography and i would recommend this movie on that basis alone what was your sort of memory and take on this one yeah, this is a absolutely awesome movie particularly if you're a fan of the the war genre um i think it's a it's it's a harrowing and epic war story. It's, as you said, beautifully shot. It's got some amazing, amazing sort of scenes in it. It's a real roller coaster as well from memory with, you know, you're kind of following characters and you, you know, you think people are going to make it and they don't. And it's, it's one of those movies too that really reminds you of the, I guess the, the horror and the kind of relentless, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Like the, it's just just how terrible war is, and the terrible conditions that um, that these guys had to live through, and the, and the fact that they survived often was almost kind of by sheer luck. And but yeah, this this is a great movie, and it's it's one that I saw at the theatre, and I think it might have been the the last movie I saw actually before mm. before we went into lockdown. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's um, look everything you've just said, I agree with. I. There's some great cast in here as well. Support cast for me was where it was strong. We had um, Benedict Cumberbatch. We had Andrew Scott. Uh, those two faced off each, against each other in, in Sherlock. So that was good to see those guys. Colin Firth. The one thing I felt perhaps 
maybe let it down a little bit. And I feel like I'm being a bit harsh here, especially when it's young people, but neither of the lead actors totally convinced me. And so that made this movie just feel a little, I don't know, I just wasn't quite convinced. And I have to say, I haven't seen either of them before. And and this was this was interesting for me because I felt like this, you know, Sam Mendes war movie would be able to attract some, you know, some pretty big, seasoned actors who are you know who are still young enough to play that sort of role but um and i also feel like and this is something that i often cause um i felt like i was the victim of hype so this movie got so much positive reaction so many people have recommended it to me that i actually went in with such super expectations but when i start thinking oh yeah dunkirk or i don't know saving private ryan band of brothers this is a great movie but when you think of those things i guess it didn't quite reach those levels it is a different type of story but there is, as I said at the start, there is so much that's that is good about this movie, and I thought they did, as well as the the cinematography. I thought they did some really good special effects. There was one scene in particular where you see a plane in the sky and like a dogfight from quite a distance, and then it crashes, and and you see it coming down all the way, and it crash lands into the barn just inches from where like the camera is set up, and I cannot even believe that it could have been CGI. I don't understand how they made it that real it was really really fantastic yeah no that definitely that was a a fantastic scene i didn't i don't recall having the same um challenge with the the leads i thought for me it was actually you know i I thought they did a great job casting like some really young actors which really probably represented the the young men that went to war at that Mm. time you know barely sort of of age and just been given these such critical missions and I think it kind of speaks to the like the disarray of war and just such critical information being left with these uh, young people and and for me I, I kind of felt so um, worried for them throughout the whole film it, it, it didn't worry me as much but I'm just trying to think this might have been around the same time that I was also deep into Band of Brothers and so I think I was real sort of hyped up into the, the right. war genre. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. No, there's, no, you're absolutely right about the young actors in it. It was, for me as well, something else I appreciated. I feel like most of my war movies, the percentage of war, World War One movies to World War Two movies is probably like 10% max. So I really appreciate uh, some some World War One stories um, for that too. And um, yeah, a really good watch, a definite recommendation. And um, for me, I give this one two and a half guns akimbo on our guns akimbo scale the next well i oh I, you go I, you go dan I, I have to give it four i i just I, I maybe i need to rewatch it i just loved it so much and you talking about it is really hyped me up for like it's been at least a year since i've seen it so i'm gonna have to go and verify that result paul yeah maybe that is quite low Maybe that is. Maybe I should push it to three. I'm not sure. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Dan, a movie that will not be getting three guns or two guns, possibly not even one, is a movie called Tangent Room. This is a 2017 movie, and you can find this on Amazon Prime. Um, and the synopsis for this one is trapped in a mysterious room with no escape, four brilliant minds race against time to prevent a cosmic collapse of the universe and they must learn to work together and solve the puzzle before it's too late. For the love of sanity, this 
was a real letdown. I got drawn in by the premise. I got drawn in by the poster and I was just left annoyed. And it didn't have anything to do with the acting or the directing or the production, you know, because this was a little bit of a budget film, a Swedish film. I, I thought that was all, all fine in that respect. But the story just does not make any coherent sense. And I challenge anyone to go watch this movie and, and, and tell me how it made any sense. It was, it was a film about mathematics. So, you know, I appreciate I'm not going to get all the equations, but thing, <laughs> things happened in this room where they were just randomly jumping from one causal boundary to another, whatever the hell that is. And it, and it just seemed like they were trying to be clever, but it just came off as being rather stupid and, I don't know. It's, sometimes in my job, right, I, I will throw a few sort of designy buzzwords together and hope it makes sense. But even I'm not as lazy as the writer is in this in this movie. They're just using random science words with no rationale: molecular displacement, chemical density, gravitational flux, with no meaning. And we're expected to believe that them by simply talking about it in this room means that suddenly people in this room will jump universes. It's just absolute nonsense and. I realize I'm on a rant here, but it's a shame because it does start off quite well and you're sort of drawn in by the whole mystery of why these four strangers have been brought into this room. But And then the door locks and they receive a message from a guy who then announces by the time they read this message, he'll already be dead. So I was really into it for like 10, 15 minutes. But after that, I was just annoyed. It reminds me of, you know, those those uh, escape rooms that you can do as mm. like um, team building activities. I literally couldn't think of anything worse than having to go and spend time with like work colleagues to go and like work Full my stop. way out of like a, a locked room. Like that just, it just, it doesn't appeal. And I feel like it's interesting because I feel like there's probably a, a good concept for a movie in there, but it sounds like this one is a swing and a miss. If I ever do by any chance, bump into your manager Dan I will be sure to recommend oh Dan really enjoys an escape room for like a Christmas office get together he loves them um yeah look I guess you know there's Amazon Prime and sometimes when you put your hand in the in the 50 cent lolly jar sometimes the lollies will come out a bit sour and a bit past their best maybe but um I'm not I'm not even giving this any guns Dan I don't think I've ever done that before stay away from it um, that is uh, yeah. that is a, a low rating for you, Paul. It's, um, I don't think I've ever heard such a low score come out of your mouth. No, and I, I want to to qualify that by saying I have watched movies with um, with with less budget, with less production value, and you can see you know the, the the director has tried hard to do what he or she has got available to them, and I've preferred those movies to to, to what I witnessed with this one. So. Uh, so that's what I've watched, Dan. Shall we move into, because we've got a whole host. We've got one, two, three, four, five. We've got like five or six things that we've watched together. Shall we Shall we jump into uh, Star Wars, The Bad Batch? Yeah, so this is episode three uh, in our Star Wars series. And this episode is basically where the bad bitch, the bad bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that's should, we, should we call the episode that? The bad bitch. <laughs> The Bad Batch gets stuck on a desolate moon. Um, what did you think of this one, Paul? I, I couldn't care less that they got stuck on a moon, if I'm honest. Uh, that is, the, the A plot to this episode did not drive my interest at all. And yet I actually quite enjoyed this episode. I found like that, that the main plot, as you've just defined it, is a very Clone Wars season eight um, 
type feel. And I don't want to labor that point because I talked about it last time, but there was a lot about this episode. I feel like it has a hundred percent of my attention whenever it's about tacking on the screen and we start to progress the biggest story about the empire um, being put together right from the start. Um, but as soon as they try to focus on like Omega and I'm just not vibing that. And I know that's the wrong attitude and I've got to get used to it, but uh, that's my take. What about you? Yeah, look, I think the same thing. I every time we went to Tarkin, it was it was interesting. It was interesting seeing just like what he was thinking about, how he was trying to grow the army, how he was trying to transition away from clones. Like that was really interesting. But I completely agree. Every time we actually went back to the Bad Batch, I was kind of just like, eh. like I I like that they've worked out um, how what's the uh, sniper clone called. Um, Oh, crosshair. Crosshair. I like that they've worked out, okay, he's got some implant. If we remove that, we can probably get him back in the crew. Like, And I think what's going to happen is we're going to go through this sort of series of the Bad Batch, and we're probably going to have like four or five like killer episodes of the end, and it's going to be like, God, that was awesome. It was worth it for all of it. But I don't know why they always have to give us these kind of, as you say, like filler clone episodes like i would rather literally watch more like the whole make the whole thing about tarkin mm. like like let's get right into his whole planning and his whole procedures because this other stuff is just we've we've had eight seasons of it already and i just don't i don't feel connected enough to the bad batch yet and i'm with you i find omega a bit out of sync like i'm not i'm not vibing her voice mm. i'm not vibing the way they kind of interact with her and like they kind of treat her like a kid but they treat her like a clone and they're giving her a bedroom and I'm like again like what are they kind of aiming for like mm. where's the where's the line that they're they're trying to set the show at no you're absolutely right and uh that whole getting the bedroom set up was just weird anyway but um I, th- there was lots in this that I liked the direction that they're going with the Camino story and as you said that move away from the clones and the sort of um how the Caminones Caminones are reacting to that and seeing that they're Mm. they're in danger of losing a lot of money and so they're they're going to try and go ahead and create a a superior clone and I start wondering how that's going to pan out so there is some some stuff in it but you're right it does have that element of filler I just want a really strong really sort of memorable episode to sort of drive us forward and I keep thinking about the Mandalorian which I know is unfair to try and compare it to that. But when you think about all the great episodes we have there and those memorable moments, I want something that does that for the Bad Batch and takes us forward in that direction because uh, there is the potential there. The The stuff with the Empire is where it's really, really interesting. And um, did you also, geek moment, did you spot the change of, um, what do you call it, the, the insignia on Tarkin's uniform? Last week he was Admiral, but this week the colours have uh, the same as what he has in A New Hope. So he's, I guess he's been promoted between episodes to Grand Moff and it sounds like we've missed out on yet another morning tea opportunity. I did not notice that, but that's, uh, that's, that's what I love about you, Paul. You are all over those little, little tidbits and I think uh, that's awesome. Definitely missed on my part. So um, I guess we should have said if you... <laughs> Don't forget to use the show notes if you're not into the Bad Batch. And that applies to all of the shows we're about to talk about. If it's not for you, you can use the notes and and move ahead to the to the next thing, which for us, Dan, if we're done with... Oh, no, you're still going. Stop oh, can, I, can I say one, one more thing yeah, on the, the Bad Batch is that I feel like, and I don't know, I've been sort of thinking about this over the week, is 
and it, it's probably my fault because I, I really tried to steer clear of trailers of, um, for this show. But in my mind, I was thinking the Bad Batch as this really elite group of clones, like they were in episode one of this, where don't worry, the Bad Batch are coming and they, they just basically wreck everyone. And I actually feel like now we're in episode three, they're not really the they're the Bad Batch in terms of like they're kind of outcasts. They're, you know, they're they've all kind of got their different quirks, but they're I thought they were gonna be more badass than they were, and they don't have that component to them. Like they're not feared, they're not they don't seem special. They they literally seem like the outcasts and hmm. I guess that's a and I don't know, that, that that's probably on, on me before what I was expecting and it's not quite turned out that way. No, they, you're right. They are like the outcasts. Um, they remind me of um, the uh, there was an '80s um, cartoon called the Rag Dolls, which was kind of like a bunch of um, sort of reject toys that got thrown into a reject basket, and then of course you know they come to life and people want to play with them. It's it's a little bit like that, and they just need to be careful how they how they walk that line. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, should we um should we move on to the other show that we have both watched, which is uh Fear the Walking Dead? Yeah, so another one of our favourite shows. This one available on Neon. We're now at season six, episode thirteen, episode JD. Uh, June splits off from the group in an effort to gather any information to help stop an oncoming threat, and it all unfolds from that point. What are you thinking? I was a little bit meh about this episode. Like overall, like it, it, I'd rather have John Dory back, to be honest. Like it's interesting that we've got, you know, his dad and I kind of like that we got a little bit of closure um, or not closure. We, we kind of like tied off some loose ends with June's story and I thought that that was good. I didn't really care for the Dwight Sherry continuation of their love story it kind of just felt I, I'm a little bit torn on this because on one hand it was kind of an interesting plot point to have John's dad kind of you know searching for these other bad guys and like it, it was interesting that we got to find out a little bit more about John but it was also kind of convenient that he was kind of this old-timey detective trying to solve the case that they're also trying to solve and and uh, it was I think we've had better episodes this season, but in and and with with these gripes, we've definitely had far, far worse episodes of The Walking Dead. So this is this is nowhere near close to that. But it, it probably just wasn't my favourite episode. I but I I enjoyed enough about it to obviously keep watching. Uh okay. I actually really did like this episode. I found it a real um, I guess it definitely had a feel-good episode feel to it, and I'm okay with that. I, I like the positive vibes and the fact that we had this new way to appreciate John because, you know, I, I guess I'm with you on that. You know, John was my favourite character, and we talked a bit about that about, you know, six weeks ago when he got killed off. And so it was great to have an episode all about him where, you know, he's not there. And I don't actually think that the fear of the walking dead or even the main walking dead have, have devoted so much of an episode to a character that has, has, has died before, to be honest. And, um, yeah, I, I've got some production, uh, notes for the, the people making the show. I feel like there's an easy way to make this episode a whole lot better. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, but firstly, John's dad, 
John Dory Sr., Keith Carradine. What a great choice to play him. He's got such a great voice. And I don't know about you, but um, I mainly remember him from from Deadwood as as Wild Bill. Um, I thought he was just a really, really good addition. And can we have him join the main cast? Wouldn't that be great, you know, to have to have John's dad in the cast? Yeah, that would that would be pretty cool. And I I think that could be a redeeming factor for me, actually, if he doesn't turn out to just be a, a fleeting character that's in it for an episode or two, but he actually turns out to be a main character. So I was with you. As soon as I heard his voice, I was like, oh, my God, it's, he's from Deadwood, he's from Dexter. Like this, He's got a huge career, um, and especially in TV, and I, I'm with you. Great choice for John's dad. I'm not sure. I haven't even looked it up, but I'm wondering if he's actually related to to David Carradine, the guy who played Bill in, in Kill Bill, just with a, a family name like that. It sounds pretty likely, right? He is. You he are is. correct. He is. Brothers or I don't know. Um, I think brothers, yeah. Yeah. I also felt differently to you about the Dwight and Sherry. I, I quite liked the fact that they're back together again because I think last week or the week before we sort of said, look, we're just over this whole attitude because I was getting a bit sick of Sherry, to be honest. You know, she sort of, she gets found by Dwight. We've been with Dwight this whole journey, trying to hope that he gets back. And then when they are back, you know, she's she's just not interested. And she, I was interested about the idea of her going back to to go find Negan, to go get some retribution, because um, that would have been interesting because, of course, we've witnessed a, cha- a character change with Negan that she hasn't seen and nor has Dwight. So I, th- I thought that was 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 quite interesting. But um, it, yeah, I think the positive vibes that came out of this because of the fact that John was uh, not there, but they all felt so close to him and they, they'd experienced that loss was what drew Dwight and Sherry back together. I thought that was was quite nice. But what would have made it more powerful for me, and this was the production note that I made, was why did they not have the actor Garrett Dillahunt who, who played John? Why did they not have him read out that letter? When so when June finally opens up the letter, why couldn't we have had? Because it would have been really easy for them to have recorded his audio before he left the show of that letter, and it would have been really powerful, especially when he references his dad and the dad is stood right there. I thought that would have added another element of emotion for me. I thought that was a really missed opportunity, but overall, I um. I definitely did in, enjoy it. Not as good as some of the ones we've had, but um, yeah, three more to go. And that's us till next season on this one. Well, I, I think what could be interesting about where this is all heading is obviously like, we're all heading towards hopefully finding Alicia. We, we're heading to a bit of a, a standoff um, with our, our new sort of bad guys. And I think as, as we've said a few episodes ago, this has been interesting because I think we've had such strong episodes at the start of the season and now we've kind of like in a beyond mid-season sort of had a, a bit of a, not a dip, but we've sort of like restarted or picking up some new plot points and it, it's sort of a bit of a different take for Fear the Walking Dead. I, I, overall, Fear the Walking Dead I think is killing it compared to some of our other content. So hmm. um, I, I'm probably being a little bit too hard on it and – I actually did enjoy – I enjoy Badass June. I think she's she's really got that down pat. Yeah, no, you're right. And we we should mention uh, Jenna Elfman, the actress who plays her. She – because we've talked a lot about, you know, John and John's dad. She was she was really strong in this this episode um, as the sort of the main tying it all together. And, um, you know, her coming back and being a little more gracious with Morgan. I loved all of that. It was, it was good. But I feel like – We've done the niceties now. We've now got three episodes. Let's let's really, 
you know, let's really hit the road and see what happens. Indeed, indeed. Speaking of June, shall we move over to our, our other TV show, The Handmaid's Tale? What a great segue from one June to another. Handmaid's Tale, another great show on Neon, season four, episode five, Chicago. June splits off from the group. No, <laughs> I was like, that can't be right. That sounds very much like the synopsis for um for fear the walking dead that's what you get for having too many tabs open so june seeks out more active rebels rebels in chicago whilst janine tries to help her fit in with their new group of survivors moira goes on her first field aid mission this this episode shocked me in a number of ways but i'll I'll hand to you first then um i'm gonna be honest with you paul this episode is a little bit blurry for me and i think it's i I probably foolishly watched this after, like, sort of during my move, finished unpacking, finally sort of got set up, thought I'd better watch uh, The Handmaid's Tale, and I, it was, like, it was good. It was, um, I've got some real questions about, like, what is June, what's her objective? Like, what's she trying to do? I don't think I understand anymore, and I don't, like, are you, what are you heading towards? Are you trying to find more resistance are you trying to find more survivors are you just trying to get out of the country because you've had chances to get out of the country like what are you ultimately looking for i enjoyed getting i actually think um janine's a really interesting character and it was really interesting i think her almost kind of survival skills to see her adapt into this sort of new group and kind of almost kind of fall for this guy in, in a in a weird um kind of naive type way but sort of help, helping them survive and I did enjoy that um June and Janine kind of made up after their last sort of milk milk tanker um breakup so it was, it was good to see that I'm intrigued to see where we go like it was quite a, a cliffhanger sort of ending for this episode so I'm, in, I'm intrigued to see where we go next yeah no it was the ending was what really well, there's a couple of things that surprised me in this episode. I think firstly, I was really surprised talking about Janine. I was really surprised that she came back to to join June after they'd made quite a big deal about their sort of big goodbye and parting of the ways. And I actually thought that was really clever writing because if they'd done like a quick goodbye and saw June leave, you'd, you'd kind of see that coming that they were going to get back together. But they made such a an effort to say that we're splitting up that she really surprised me when she showed back up. So that was pretty good. But the, the ending was really quite a surprise. I guess I guess I always expected Moira uh, and June at some point to be reunited since, you know, they've been, that relationship's been their rights from the start and they've been apart for so long. But I I don't know. I, for me, I guess it felt like it might have been like a almost a well, maybe not a series finale, but certainly a season finale type thing. So it was really interesting that they just they've thrown that in relatively early into into the season. So I yeah cannot wait for the next episode. It's a great cliffhanger. Well, I think what's going to be interesting about it is where are they going to go from here? Because like, is June going to go over to Canada and mm. kind of like? you know, recharge, like, is she going to end up seeing the Waterfords again? What's going to be her situation? Is, did Janine actually make it out of this? Like, I think there's probably a high chance that she probably didn't. Um, If they're kind of stuck in an attack, 
Arjun and Moira now going to be sort of stuck in Chicago and trying to find their way back to Canada? Like, there's some interesting options in there. I'm just, as I say, I'm. It's really further confirmed for me. I don't know what June's plan is or what her goal. What's she trying to achieve? Yeah, no, that's a that's a fair enough question. And you could you you're very well could well be could very well be right about Janine. There is a really high chance because those bombs, the sounds of those planes when they came overhead to bomb Chicago, and the vision of that was you know quite a powerful thing to to watch in a sort of a modern day setting um that was that was pretty crazy and so who knows if she survived or not but um i i feel like um i've got some other thoughts around some of the other characters is there anything else you got on june or moira or janine um i don't think so well i guess apart from you know you mentioned the writing before and i think this would actually be the real bittersweet twist of the knife or the or the pen in this case because I think as you said there was such a great farewell already between June and Janine and then they they kind of made up and then to actually lose her now would be so hard on June mm. and this is the thing I feel like June has been through so so much and this will this will probably break her so much more I think it will I think it will be tempered by the fact that she's got Moira back but yes I think it I think that would be quite shocking if they did that so um actually one one other thing that's kind of got me worried small w is if June makes it makes it back to Canada is like I'm I'm not sure I want like because you know like we we get these little glimpses of Luke as a character Mm. and he's obviously like I feel like he's also kind of like I think he's still in love with June ultimately. Like, he doesn't really know all of the different things that she's been through and how tragic and horrible and stuff. And I I almost don't want June to see Luke. Like I don't want them to reconnect Nick. because Nick. June's going to break his heart. No, I was, think, oh, I was thinking of Oh, of Luke, Luke, of course, Luke. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that side of things. Oh, my goodness, I've forgotten all about him. Okay, that's really interesting. Whereas yeah. I think, like, because obviously, like, her, her heart's with Nick, Nick. right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so... And so I think it's a whole nother dilemma, which is why I think, like, even if she makes it back to Canada, where's she going? Yeah. You know, like, that. yeah, anyway. That's, let, let, let's talk about some other characters. Yeah, no, that's next level thinking. I hadn't, that's going real deep. No, the, the other thoughts I had was there was a really great scene, and I thought, again, good writing. They progressed the story really well when Lydia had dirt on Commander Lawrence, and she's trying to get her way back in, and he's like, I need the dirt you've got on other people so that I can get back in and then I can get you back in. And they could have, they could have dragged this, that through the whole mechanism of that, but they didn't. And basically we sort of jump to a scene where she's out in the yard training and, and prep talking the handmaids and she's back at, you know, her, she's back in her element and he's back at the big table and, you know, suddenly he's calling the shots. And I found that really really good and I found it really it was just really satisfying seeing Aunt Lydia back in her sort of normal substantive role and I uh, I'm ready to see her absolutely lose it if someone doesn't get her um, of Joseph um, but at the same time I do feel that she may be a little bit like Eugene in The Walking Dead back in season seven I feel like she I feel like she may be on the verge of doing some good and turning out, um, for want of a better word, uh, 
not joining the resistance, but doing some things that benefit the resistance because she's experienced what it's like to be on the on the other side of those men that hold the power in Gilead. And I, I feel like she's pretty triggered. And if there's one thing I love, it's a triggered Aunt Lydia. I think Aunt Lydia is definitely the breakout star of this TV show. Uh, I think what's interesting is, you know, that between Commander Lawrence and uh, Nick, it's such a fickle leadership sort of system, isn't it? Because, and it's obviously all built on information and who's sort of got the upper hand because one minute you've got all the power and the next minute you're kind of kept in the dark and, you know, and I think, you know, because often Nick's portrayed as quite a, a senior progressing through the ranks he's, he's doing very well and then we you know when he finds out about the bombing he like he's sort of completely kept in the dark with lots of that information mm. no really good point really good point i uh i just had one other thought that i wanted to throw out there and i don't know how to say it appropriately because let's bear in mind this is a fictitious show so keep that in mind but i feel like i prefer it when june is being held captive i feel like i prefer it when she's <sighs> So, like, if you think about a show like Prison Break, I don't know about you, just changing gears here, I found Prison Break was always more exciting when they were still in prison and they were planning the escape and they were on the verge of escape. And the same thing in Handmaid's, I feel like when she's back at the house with the Lawrences or with the Waterfords, I feel like in that setting it's the most tense and the tension is all about her escaping. And once she's out there, that's when I feel like, as you've talked about, the purpose is a little bit lost. And so it's not that I want her as a person to be in captivity, but I feel like from a tension writing perspective that's where the real value is i think this is always the challenge right and i feel like i'm becoming a bit of a broken record about it but this is where you know season one it like the characters that we you know love them or hate them and i know that there's that some of these people are the other bad guys but the waterfords interesting when nick was a driver interesting when there's those sort of relationships between june and um uh, even without Lydia visiting the house and just even being unsure of what other handmaids to trust when, you know, handmaids always walk in pairs. And it's, I think it, it's it's a bit more contained and I feel like this is characters I still care about, but all of a sudden they're kind of scattered around the place and I don't think there's a, a mechanism to bring them all back together at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because now we've kind of got where we've busted out into the big open world. And I think this is always the challenge when they're making content based off, particularly a book and it's, you know, and Game of Thrones, so this is that challenge, right? There's a really good sort of like tight script. And as soon as they don't have sort of the next book, you've got sort of writers in a room bouncing around different ideas. I've got no idea. I presume that's what writers do. And, you know, sort of coming up with their own oh, plots and twists and let's do this. Um, but when it's a, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is, is a relatively – oldish book and so the, it's, it's been refined it's had lots of time to sort of to be thought about they thought about how to craft the story but the stuff they're making now isn't a book so they're having to sort of come up with their own ideas and I know that this is done uh, often with the original writer but it still is never quite as good as the as the book content yeah no I think that's a fair comment for for this and for many other things as well for for along a similar vein but uh, a good episode and more again next week. Dan, shall we move into, before we go into our movie of the week, we'll do our full series six review of a show that we've been watching week by week, Line of Duty season six. Well, this has been, 
we've been wanting to talk about this show for a long, long time. And Paul and I are both really big fans of the line of Judy. I know that Paul's been carefully trying to make sure he stays up to date because here in New Zealand, all of this TV show has actually been been released around the world already. And we've kind of been drip-fed it, so we've had to be really careful to avoid spoilers. This was a, a big season uh, that we were going into, and I don't know whether, Paul, do you want to give a bit of a, a synopsis about, about what, what this is all about? For sure. So firstly, if you haven't seen Line of Duty before, this is a, a British police drama series following the investigations of AC-12, a controversial police anti-corruption unit. And if you have not watched this show, or if you want to, again, use the timings and jump ahead because we have to talk full spoilers. This is season six, so I'm assuming if you're with us, you're up to date. So now we have a character coming into the show called DCI Joanne Davidson conducting an investigation into the murder of a journalist. And AC-12 are trying to work out who's behind the murder as well and whether Joe Davidson's involved. She's trying to pin this murder on this guy who's been used by the OCG several times already. That's the organized crime group. We're going to use a lot of acronyms as we go through this. That's part of the that's part of the fun of Line of Duty, right? We've got our old mate Ryan Pilkington, who we first met back in 2012, and here he is back nine years later. He's no longer that 13-year-old boy. He's now a corrupt OCG cop. And is Joe behind the murder? Is she a bent copper fella? And Will we finally find out who the fourth man, aka H, who that is? Um, DS waiting. Carry on. <clears throat> I was going to try and do a, a voice there to sort of match yours, but I, I know I, I can't compete. I can't do Look, it either. I'm just having some fun here. I love this. Hastings is the best, right? Hastings is, I could watch an entire show purely about him. It's fantastic. So, look, Line of Duty is, uh, I think for me, one of those shows I didn't know whether I was going to like, but I've absolutely loved every single season. And I think I was really looking forward to season six, and I actually enjoyed all of the episodes apart from this last one. And I think, I don't know about you, Paul, but you know, there's been a lot of hype over the last few seasons about who is this fourth person. And so they're referred to as H, our our, our leader of AC12, um, Hastings. His, his name starts with, with an H. Is it going to be him? There's all these sort of like little twists and turns that he actually could be this guy. And I think it's – I think what's what's tough about it is – Every season is kind of based on, I guess, a, a different, often corrupt um, policeman or woman, and the, the scene is, season is no different, but it, they try to take us deeper into who who is H. And I don't know whether they've given us with this season a bit of a a bit of a serve to be like the case is closed or is it dot 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 or actually the case is closed and it wasn't quite as, as special or spectacular as we were all hoping it was going to be what do you, and I feel a little bit bittersweet complaining about this because Line of Duty is a complete top tier series and if I sort of take that component away from it regardless of the sort of the outcome it's, I would highly recommend the show. It's, it's a, definitely, you know, it's been on our top 10 list many a time. I've, I've heard what you said, and I agree with a lot of it. I have to be honest. There was, 
Uh, no, there was a, a dip in that final episode, and I've been looking at the ratings online, and I think the dip, you know, they've got it down as a 5.3 at this point, Dan. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh, um, given that Line of Duty is always up in the 8s or 9s, and, and as you get to the series finale, quite often at the highest. So, yes, there was a little bit of a dip. I think it's really good that the mystery of the, of the fourth man has been revealed, because even... Even if there is more of that story to tell, and I think there will be, I think yes, we have got the fourth man, but we sort of saw a little smirk on his face when the when the little letterbox thing was being shut. Um, at least we don't have to be in the dark about who it is, because whilst we are a patient audience, there's only so much we can take of this after so many years, and I think it's good to get closure on that. I think a lot of people are struggling with the fact that it was. Um, What's his name? Ian Buckle, Buckles, Bickles, whatever he is, um, uh, because he was such an incompetent person. But I thought that was a good facade to hide that behind. I didn't have as much trouble with the fact it was him as I know a lot of people have. I talked to quite a few people in the office and elsewhere. People aren't that happy with it. But I, I did appreciate that much for me that, that we found out who, who H was because the season itself, if we ignore that element of it right up until then, I thought was was really, really top notch. DS Whiting. Yeah, look, and I think this is why I say it with a bit of a grain of salt because it, the overall season is always a, a thrilling watch. There's so many twists and turns. It's really fascinating to get a, an inside look at police corruption, particularly to see how they tackle it. I think they've done a really great job, uh, particularly with Steve and Kate, our, our two main detectives. Of sort of taking us on their career journeys, and you know we know them more than just officers. We kind of know some of the the struggles that they they also face, particularly Steve. Mm. Um, and I, I just I just don't feel satisfied with this ending, and I just feel like they're gonna they're gonna come back for a season seven, um, if there is a season seven, and they're gonna be like, just kidding, just kidding. The the real H is still out there. But at the same time, like maybe they should just move on. I I, I don't know. I, I guess I just I, I wanted more. And this is always the challenge. And I, I read somewhere online that has Line of Duty just Game of Thrones itself where, you know, when you create this such you know, there's such a huge fan base and you, you get and it's the same with remember when Negan had everyone lined up in the in the half circle at mm. the end of I think season six of The Walking Dead. And you know, people were talking about that for six, eight months and just like all these theories and then once you actually get the outcome, it's like, oh, is that it? Oh, that's not what I wanted. Whereas in reality, it probably is an okay story, but it's hard to immediately see past it. Firstly, I I don't know who they could have labelled as being the fourth man who would have been more satisfying that would have given us more closure. I don't really know. I mean, if we'd gone with the chief of police, it would have been very very obvious that was that was what my guess was um secondly i will for the second time sing on this podcast if they they write as you have suggested dan with your writer's hat on if they if they come back ah just kidding it's not the real h um i cannot imagine that i really think i honestly genuinely believe that story that part of it has been put to bed we've now got AC12 at their weakest. We've, we, we seem like we've got Kate back in uh, the fold again. It's, they're back down just to the three of them. And I feel like there's going to be now 
there'll be an ongoing story with the OCG. And um, that's where I think there has to be a seventh season for absolute sure. Um, but um, yeah. I, I actually think this is where, you know, like if, if we if we put the H stuff aside, Line of Duty is at its best when it's kind of dealing with these kind of like core little sub subplots of you know or or there's a sort of core bad guy of the season and i actually think line of duty could go on for another five six seven seasons if they kind of just had seasonal contained episodes like you know this, this season's all about this this season's all about this i would even watch a tv show that's just hastings Stephen kate starting their own private detective company and they're investigating stuff like amazing sign me up there's a spin-off Right there, but you know you're right. The sort of like the the tradition of Line of Duty every year having a, a guest actor or actress come in, and you know this season was Kelly McDonald as the guest, and I I always feel, and right from the very start when we had uh, Lenny James, you know who we know best from Walking Dead, came in as as the very first one. I always feel like so much rests on their shoulders as to whether or not the season will get across the line because the story, you know, centers around them to a large extent. And I thought she was very, very good in this. Um, I've, to be honest, I've not seen her in much other than the two train spotting movies, but I thought she was, she was strong and a, a good central character for the story. Her, you know, that classic, really harsh Scottish accent. Like when she's talking to Kate, it's like she's spelling the name k-e-e-t you know it's just so keet keet it's just so harsh and really i i i love it i just love it it's so good um and the other and the other thing i was going to mention is just you know just if we put aside the this drop in form at the finale i have to say the jed jed mercurio the writer he just writes tension like no other. There was a couple of episodes sort of in the middle of the season that when it got to the final scene and cut to credits even though it was like 11 o'clock at night, which is way past my normal bedtime. <laughs> I, I felt so wired. And if it wasn't for the fact that this show, you know, was dropping weekly here in New Zealand on, on TVNZ, if it didn't, I feel like I could have been easily binging this whole show over two nights. Yeah, no, definitely. I think there's, um, I, I feel like it, it's, a, it's, um, it's unfortunate that I'm sort of talking about this negative stuff because I feel like it is such a, as you say, a top tier TV show. And I think what I also like about it is they kind of do like quite a, a dry subject matter. And then all of a sudden they throw in these epic action scenes and they're, they're top tier. And I think it just really takes you on a bit of a edge of your seat journey. And they're, they're such a great supporting cast as well. The other character that I really enjoy is, uh, Shalom, uh, Brun Franklin, who plays Chloe, the other, mm. is that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, who yeah. plays the other detective. And I think, again, just, you know, so straight-laced and so just like, you know, they they use that character to obviously sort of fill in some sort of major story components of how they're, they're solving the case. But it's all just such a, a tightly run unit. It would be a it would be an honour to be part of AC12. Yeah, look, you're, you're absolutely right because one of, the, one of the minor criticisms I have, and now I think you've sort of tempered that, is – that I I really like it when Kate and Steve and Hastings are all on the same page. They're all I know I know they have to mix things up to, to keep it interesting, but I do prefer it when they're all sort of working together properly. Um, 
but you're right. Chloe was was a, a good partner with Steve. Um, Steve was very serious in this season compared to others. He looks a lot older now than than when he first started. If you watch, like I had a look at the trailer for season one, if he, he just looks so young in season one. I don't know. He looks real. He's got this pointy beard, you know, kind of gives him a bit of a, a hard edge. But um, his story this season just um, annoyed me at times with the, you know, with the pain, with the the pain meds, I don't really care about that story. We've been and done, we've been there and done it. You know, it's um, they're not going to retire him. He's a central character. They should probably leave it alone. But uh, the um, the the relationship between the the three is, as you say, where it's where it's all at. And um, I think um, another character that I would mention is Carmichael. And the instant they brought her in to take over AC12 and merge her group with 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 Ted's and push Hastings out the door. I could not cope with that. They can never retire Hastings. I don't care how old he is. And the actress, Anna Maxwell-Martin, does such a good job as Superintendent Carmichael. She's so dislikable that I do not think I would even cope with meeting her in real life. She's just that terrible. She's like the Aunt Lydia of Handmaid's Tales. The, the casting is bang on. She's great. It's interesting, though, because I think the... The storyline with Steve, uh, particularly, uh, and even Kate, like I, I didn't enjoy. I, I don't like it when Steve and Kate are out of sync, and they're kind of there's a bit of tension between them. But I think what was interesting with particularly Steve is I think you know Steve as a uh, as an actor um, has done a really great job of sort of bringing the you know like he's always in pain, which is why he's always angry. And I think even though it's kind of frustrating that they're not going to they're not going to lose him. He's a, he's a central part to all the story. Is I think what they're trying to paint with that picture is even the most straight laced still has you know compromises they're having to make, and those compromises in the eyes of AC twelve, like there is no compromises. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're going to follow the the law to the letter. The letter. And um, <laughs> and so, and I think that that's sort of the plot point they're going for with it with a character like Steve, but. Look, it's a it's such a, a a great TV show. If any any time you're thinking I'm looking for a great show to get involved in, six seasons. And what I love about it too is we're only talking about uh, sort of four or five episodes. I think in some of those earlier seasons, and there's seven episodes in this season. It's but they're they're great sort of one hour quality episodes, and it's it's always an enjoyable watch. It is. I recently recommended a whole bunch of British police dramas to someone. I think I came up with like a dozen and I just put this at the top. I said, this is where you start. And I said, if you're not into this, there's a chance you won't like any of them because this is as good as it gets, to be honest. And uh, I feel like, Dan, we should prepare ourselves just talking about Hastings and uh, the letter of the law. I feel like we need to create like a line of duty bingo sheet for all the classic things that we expect to hear in a season. Um, and uh, see how many we can spot. There's so many great things. Even the recording, you know, when they do the recording and they, they start the tape off and there's that buzzer when they hit record. I feel like, I swear, each season that buzzing sound gets longer and longer as you just have this awkward awkward moment as you're waiting for the buzzing to stop so they can start recording. It's um, it's just, there's just so I'm, much. I'm also very intrigued from just a, a pure logistics point of view, how they manage those interviews. Because, you know, like, so the three of them sit down if they're interviewing and, like, 
they're just instantly sort of almost like pass the talking stick back and forth between each other and they've all got like the files ready to go like if someone said to me oh oh dc whiting can you bring up this file but like, oh, hold on i can't log in oh what's my password again you know like it would be chaos <laughs> and i feel like they do such a, a great streamlined version of that I feel like Half Measure's version of AC12 really would not function that well at all because they're so well choreographed. And that's what I, you know, when I've been throwing it, anyone's been wondering why I keep saying DS Whiting. It's like they just throw the talking stick to each other by just saying the other person's name and they know exactly what to pick up on and where to go to next. It's it's like a beautifully rehearsed thing. I, I it's yeah, I can't get enough of those moments. That's that's the strength of the show for me when they've they've got the person that we all know is either the bad guy or or we need to prove that they're innocent and they've got them in the room and that's when the show for me is really at its strongest when they if because if they're in the room, they know that they must have enough evidence to to do something. And if they haven't, well Mother of God. Uh, indeed, indeed. So, look, great show. Highly recommended. I think overall, it's definitely an endorsement from us. Um, to, to, some some minor frustrations, but I wouldn't say anything to to put you off watching this show. No. And I, I think it's at some point in our lives, well, I'm sure we'll, we'll rewatch this one. Oh, we've 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 already done that. I think now we're into our third watch. So yeah, that's the strength of it. And it, there is so much that you miss, not miss. What's the word that you forget that that comes back mm-hmm. and you just real subtle things. It's great. Great times, great times. Oh well, should we move on to our movie of the week? Carry on, Gaffer. All right, so um, each week, Paul and I take turns choosing a different movie of the week, and this week we have watched the 2020 movie Nomadland. So uh, this one got a lot of attention, won a lot of awards. A woman in her 60s, after losing everything in the Great Recession, embarks on a journey through the American West, living in a van-dwelling modern-day, sorry, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. I'll tell you, Paul, this movie has sat with me for way longer than I ever anticipated. And it's a movie, I don't know what I expected going in, and I think it's always interesting. Like, if this movie hadn't won all of those awards, it probably would have completely gone under my radar and not something I would have watched. But I found it a weirdly enjoyable film, and I have been thinking about this movie for several days now and just thinking about the the concept of like you know being a being a nomad the i think how sort of society and the recession has impacted um fern the people that she meets sort of the hard life on the road and it's 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 really as i say it's sat with me way more than I thought a movie like this would. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I you're right for starters with the whole, you know, the awards it won is what got it on my radar. Otherwise, because if you have a look at the poster and she's just sat there looking at her sort of her laundry dying, uh, drying, it's, uh, it's very, you really have to dive deep to get into this. And so I didn't know what to expect coming into it, but I don't think I expected that... Um, this turned out to be something that almost almost felt kind of like some sort of documentary in summers or a biography of sorts. It seemed so so real. It seemed so authentic 
that the way it was shot didn't have a movie like feel to it it didn't feel didn't feel like a film it felt almost like a at times a fly on the wall a you know a journey of of insights into you know someone's world that's been turned upside down and, and a lot of the the support cast around what was her name fern did you say that was it yeah fern where yeah it was almost like when they were saying their lines they they weren't getting them wrong but it was like they were improving them the whole way they, they the support cast i can't quite explain it they just they made this feel not like a movie which was a, an interesting experience yeah i completely agree in fact you could easily mistake this for a, a documentary because every interaction she had felt quite natural mm. and you know it's it's interesting because Frances McDormand, who 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 plays Fern, like she's been in quite a few great movies. Uh, she's been in uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, she's been in Isle um, Isle of Dogs. Um, she's been in Good Omens. She's even been in Transformers: Dark of the Moon. Like she she's <laughs> wow. She's she's done it. She's got a variety behind her. But I think it's I think what really hit me with this film is I think just the how her life was like her, her life with her partner sort of did get turned upside down the fact that she kind of like became so reliant on seasonal work the fact that this whole kind of postcode of people where she lived just kind of like disappeared in, in the in kind of the blink of an eye in a sort of overnight situation because of the recession and then her sort of choosing to live on the road and the the kind of the I, Complications is probably too strong a word, but like, because I think I actually think she she made it work for her mm. with the space that she had and the situation she had, and I think she she did the best that she could. And I I think what the reason it sat with me is I think this is this is going to get a little bit political. I think this is a great example of like the the probably underrepresented group of people in America mm. like they're kind of forgotten about like you're not necessarily in any major sort of demographic you're kind of surviving just but you're you're living paycheck to paycheck but no one really is looking out for you and this is and it's I think it just sort of it shone a light on something which is probably kind of pushed aside so often yeah no I think you're right pushed aside kind of in the same respect we when we talked about concrete cowboy uh, a couple of weeks ago, that's sort of something that's that uh, is being pushed to one side or doesn't have the light shone on it very often. And Frances McDormand, she was, as you said, really good in the role. I, the one I always think of for her, of course, is Fargo. That's the one that always sticks to me. But she, she in this one was just very natural. Seemed to 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 genuinely feel like she belonged in this world. It was very. Um, it was. Yeah, it's a very sad movie. It's very raw in places. I really appreciated the the view into that world, um, and and I, at the same time appreciating that that yes, she was struggling in life financially and and otherwise. Sometimes there were some things about that way of life that seemed quite oddly very appealing as well, sort of um, as a as a way of life, which um, isn't something I expected myself to think. But um, yeah, it's. Um, Oh, and the other the other thing I was going to mention the guy uh, who who played opposite her as sort of like a a bit of an interest um, David 
David Strathan, is that how you pronounce his name? He was really good in this. I, I remember him mainly from the Bourne movies, but he had a real good chemistry with Francis McDormand. I thought he was good too. Mm-hmm. Now, look, this, is, this isn't my normal genre of movie at all, but this is one of those movies that definitely sat with me. It's, I think, probably my initial Guns of Kimbo rating looking at at my spreadsheet I actually put it in quite low but then on reflection I actually went back and I changed the the number to actually bump it up a little bit because as I say it's a movie that you go away and and think more about and and I probably would recommend this to other people to watch because I think it it, as I say I think it tells a a story that's not often told yeah no fair enough and I Look, I'm going to give this two and a half guns on the on the on the scale. However, I will add that as much as I've sort of talked about this and praised it and things I've appreciated, at the same time, I think I can guarantee and that I will probably not watch this one again. I feel like I've almost treated it almost, whether it's right or wrong, as a bit of a as an education as to what this sort of this modern day nomad's life is like. And I've got that and I appreciate that, but I don't see a rewatch for me on the horizon, despite how much I enjoy it. So I guess it's one that I say definitely watch it once, but uh it's that that would be it for me, I think. Yeah, it's funny. So I would I would probably my initial guns would have been a two, but I probably I've bumped it up to a three. Hmm. Um just because I, I think I did enjoy it. I often do find, though, when a movie comes out like this and it wins all these awards and I'm kind of late to the party, it's a bit like it's, it's already been hyped up and it's like, you know, I, I often sit it at such a higher bar than it can ever possibly deliver. Uh, but, yeah, look, it was – this is the great thing about Movie of the Week. It's always getting us to watch something different, right? Exactly right, exactly right. Dan, can I ask you to give us some news, please? All right, moving over to the news desk. So we've just recently had the 2021 MTV um, Movie and TV Awards. And so I thought I'd just share with you a couple of the the key categories and winners. So uh, Best Movie this year went to To All the Boys, Always and Forever. The Best TV Show went to WandaVision. Talked about that lots here on the pod. Mm. The best performance in a movie went to Chadwick Boseman for uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Best performance in a TV show, Elizabeth Olsen, WandaVision. Best hero, Anthony Mackie for The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Best kiss went to Chase Stokes and Madeline Klein (laughs) for Outer Banks. Best comedic performance went to Leslie Jones for Coming to America. Best villain went to uh, Catherine Hahn for WandaVision. Uh, best breakthrough performance went to Reggie Regi- Jean Page from Bridgerton. Best fight, another WandaVision award for Wanda vs. Agatha. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, best duo, uh, this is the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So that's the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, best documentary is BTS Break the Silence. Um, that's probably enough of that list. But what I enjoy about the the MTV list compared to maybe like the the Oscars is, as I enjoy some of these these fun categories that they often have. And uh, unlike the the Oscars this year, I actually I've, I've watched quite a few of these TV shows and movies, so that's always a fun time. It's interesting because I was just thinking I haven't watched too many of them. Like you know, Coming to America was in there for me. Um, Reggie Jean Page, he he deserves his award for Bridgerton. He was he was really good in that too. 
And just a, a couple of other little bits of news for me. So it looks like Amazon is in talks to buy MGM for as much as $10 billion. James Bond and Lord of the Rings under one roof. Wow. What do you think? That is crazy. Look, I, I'm i excited about that because I feel like there's more chance that Amazon might actually get that No Time to Die moving. I don't see why that's not going to be coming out in the cinema now that we're moving forward in the world for once. But um, yeah, $10 billion, that is, a, that is a lot of money, right? That is a lot of money, but I, that would make, you know, this could be a real game game changer for the Amazon Prime platform. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in the rest of the world, but in, in New Zealand, it's, it's okay, but there's it's definitely not the a platform that a lot of people use, and it struggles to sort of compete with some of our other platforms here. Speaking of... Um, I guess, acquisitions and um, buyouts and all that sort of thing. So it looks like HBO Max parent company, Warner Media, is merging with Discovery in a $43 billion deal. So after less than three years, AT&T is pulling the plug on its entertainment ambitions, divesting its Warner Media division it paid $85 billion for in 2018 to Discovery. And so the company's just announced that Warner Media's entertainment assets would combine with Discovery to create a premier standalone global entertainment company. So again, this, this is this is this is huge, right? Like HBO obviously mm. has a lot of fantastic content. There's um, other um, sh- providers in, in that package deal as well, and I I think it's such a, a a hot space. And I think that there's a there's a problem. I think coming, or it's, it's already here to be honest. But you know, everyone used to sort of hate the the model. Like for example, here in New Zealand, where you know your cable provider you have to pay a big bill to have it, and then that kind of has been diversified down, and now we're paying ten dollars for Netflix and. You know, seventeen dollars for neon or whatever it may be. We're sort of, and and now there's just so many platforms. It's almost like we're probably going to go full circle and almost sort of end up at sort of one sort of master digital platform at some point. But interesting to see. What's interesting and, is what is interesting and, about that is I feel like we'll be coming into one master place, but I feel like the content will be a lot better than when we were under one one roof previously. Perhaps, hopefully, indeed, indeed. Um, and then a final bit of news for me, you might have seen over the weekend that a new trailer has dropped, um, G.I. Joe Snake Eyes. I don't know if you had a chance to check that one out, Paul. I have seen it. It's been on my sort of list to watch. I haven't got around to watching it. I've seen the, the first two G.I. Joe movies. Is it just two or have they made more? I I believe there's just two. Mm. I'm, I'm in intrigued about this one and it kind of caught me like I knew they were sort of doing some stuff but I wasn't really sure what they're doing with the G.I. Joe franchise I watched the sorry I watched the trailer the other day it looks interesting um it it comes out pretty soon here it comes out on the the 22nd of July so not too far away Mm. and that is all the news I have anything over on your desk just a few things that have dropped trailers that I have caught my eye uh, the the teaser trailer for the final season of Bosch um, a show that you and I have both enjoyed that's dropped um, with the final season uh, coming out on the 25th of June so that's exciting and we already know there's a spin-off show coming so it'll be interesting to see how they end that with that in mind um, a trailer a very brief tree uh, teaser trailer for the 
reunion after 17 years for Friends also dropped this week. That'll be dropping um, this week. So as our podcast says, that's coming out 27 May. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, and another one which uh, I know is going to appeal to the the very young Daniel Whiting who told us those stories of his uh, He-Man and the Battle Axe. Uh, the the power returns. Um, the yeah the the latest iteration of He Man. The the few pictures have come to to light, and it looks it looks very different, but with enough similarities in there, it looks of really high quality. And I can't wait to see that one come out. I for one will definitely be watching that, and I can't wait to relive my He Man and Skeletor uh, memories from. I think I got those toys when I was five, so it's been a while. I didn't see Man at Arms in the photographs. I saw all the other characters. Like literally, you couldn't believe how many characters there. But I couldn't see Man at Arms. He better be in there. Do you, do you think they'll keep his little moustache if if he stays? I really hope so, because that's quintessential Man at Arms, right? Mm, indeed, indeed, indeed. Great stuff. Can't wait. It must be time for a bit of mailbag. Yes, a couple of things here. So firstly, over on our Discord community, um, a little while ago, um, Sador, who's who's often active in our Discord, um, in fact, he's virtually a Half Measures uh, member of staff sometimes, um, he recommended a movie called Infinity Chamber. And when I had a look at this online, I was like, oh yeah, this, this movie really appeals to me. Couldn't find it anywhere in New Zealand. But you know, us down, we don't let that stop us. We found a solution, a legal one. So we contacted the producers. Producers put us directly in touch with the movie's director, Travis Malloy, and he emailed us this week and is giving us special access to the film for us to watch and review. And I love that. So, yeah, a massive thanks to him and also to Sador for recommending this movie because it really sounds to be very much up my alley. So that was pretty cool. Um, what else have we got here? Oh, yeah, so last week's peak performance. Jack Nicholson, a few people gave us their picks. Ryan on Instagram went with Chinatown, uh, 1974, adding it's pretty underrated. I have to be honest, I have not seen that one since I was at university, so like early 90s type thing. Uh, Michael from North Carolina went with The Shining, and he also went with uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which of course Jack got one of his Oscars for. Um, Sarah from Porirua went with As Good As It Gets, which is one where he got another one of his Oscars. And Paddy from Time Travelling Team Podcast gave us his 321, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, A Few Good Men. And number one, like us, was as the Joker in Batman. And oh, and finally, our, our social media post last week about uh, the Robin Williams movie, One Hour Photo, um, that actually got the attention of the movie's director, Mark Romanek and he actually posted um he posted our entire review and the photo we used on his personal Instagram which was pretty awesome this is a, it just fascinates me sometimes this is a guy who arguably got like the best performance out of Robin Williams ever and here he is po- you know posting half measures podcast reviews on his Instagram that was pretty unexpected um and not only that but we got a like from the actor Jack Black um don't know if he listened to the podcast, but we don't 100% know that Jack Black didn't listen to the listen to the podcast. Uh, and that's the way I like to look at it. And that's the mailbag. That's amazing. I, I love the idea that Jack Black would be listening to our podcast. 
Just imagine. Just imagine that. Indeed, indeed. All right, Paul, shall we move on to our peak performances? Indeed. So just like our movie of the week, each week, Dan and I take it in turns to choose an actor, actress, producer or director, and then we choose their top three movies. Who have we got this week, Dan? This week, Paul, we have gone with John Goodman, which I think is largely sort of, uh, so it was my pick this week, and inspired by um, the rewatch of The Big Lebowski. And I think just talking about what a, a great actor John Goodman is. Yeah. Would you like Would you like to go first this week? Yeah, no, for sure. I um, I think I knew within sort of 30 seconds when I went through my mind, uh, it was pretty quick for me, this one, um, because there's, there's three movies that always spring to mind. Firstly, 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. And this, for me, is, is probably, I don't know, well, who knows, but for me it feels like one of the least well-known Martin Scorsese films. I haven't seen it in a while, probably since it came out. Um, it really, it's a movie that really puts you through the ringer, so to speak. And John Goodman plays the ambulance driver working alongside Nick Cage um, and Nick Cage's characters going through this, this whole thing about the lives that he hasn't been able to save. And John Goodman's sort of rapport with him is, is really, really strong. As I say, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I've just got one of those memories that's, that's always told me you really enjoyed that. You want to watch it again. And I've, I've never actually found it anywhere to watch, but um, definitely for me in my top three, uh, Number two is 2016's 10 Cloverfield Lane. And I am a big fan of the of that whole Cloverfield universe. Um, and I think that this is, so this was the second movie out of the three they've made so far. And, and I think casting John Goodman as the crazy one in this movie, um, who sort of comes across as good nature, but actually he's sort of holding the main character in this movie hostage in his underground bunker. I thought he was great because he's so kind and gentle, but he's, he is a big, strong man and he's lost the plot. And when he's got that big voice being trapped in a bunker with him makes that whole situation really tense. And um, yeah, I really hope there's more Cloverfield movies, but this one, uh, I thought it was really, really great casting. He was great in it. And of course, number one, no surprises for me, 1998, The Big Lebowski. Um, Jeff Bridges is the dude and he's on all the posters. He's he's Lebowski. But when I think of this movie, as I said, when we first talked about it a couple of weeks ago, when I forget how we even got... Oh, because we were talking about the Coen brothers, weren't we? Um, I sort of say I always think about John Goodman in this movie and I always enjoy his scenes the most. And I actually saw an interview where he says that the Coen brothers actually wrote this role for him specifically. And no wonder he plays it to perfection. Um, yeah, we talked about it last, last week, so I won't go on. But yeah, his booming voice has never been used better. So bringing out the dead, 10 Cloverfield Lane and the Big Lebowski. Great choices, Paul. This is going to make um, my summary very quick so number three for me is i've actually gone with 10 cloverfield lane as well pretty much for all the reasons you've said i think it's such a you know we we often talk about our love of those sort of tightly confined movies and i think john goodman as you said is is completely sort of steals the show and he's such a, a great character that he can go from sort of quietly spoken to 
really sort of powerful over the top and I think he's just fantastic. Number two, I've actually gone for The Big Lebowski, um, just with the, the rewatch, sorry, not the rewatch, the fresh watch mm. last week. Um, and again, tune into last week's episode if you want to hear us talk about that one. But number one for me, I've actually gone with a TV series and I've gone with John Goodman's um, role in the 2019 TV show, The Righteous Gemstones. And so... This is a, I think this is a TV show, particularly for those fans of Eastbound and Down. So, uh, John Goodman plays, uh, Dr. Eli Gemstone, and he basically leads this family of evangelical, um, preachers. And if you, if you love Eastbound and Down, then this series will probably also be right up your alley. And I think he plays, he's so great. He's actually lost a ton of weight. Um, if you even just sort of Google his character, uh, Dr. Eli Gemstone, you'll, you'll see how much weight he's lost. And he just looks fantastic as a, as a, as a preacher in America. So highly recommended. It's a lot of fun. And of course, it's got Danny McBride, who's always, um, extreme value as far as I'm concerned. So my three, two, one is 10 Cloverfield Lane, the Big Lebowski and the Righteous Gemstones. There's there's so much in there that um, appeals to me that I don't know how I can possibly not watch The Righteous Gemstones, so uh, I'll keep an eye out for that one. I see it's on Neon. Okay, easy. Easy, easy. Get amongst it. Well, Paul, this has turned into quite a long episode considering um, I have only watched the shows that we've kind of jointly been watching, but um, I guess... Yeah, that, that's it for another week. We'll continue to conduct ourselves to the letter of the law until next week. But uh, special mention, as always, to the Roddenberry Podcast Network for bringing this episode to you this week. And don't forget, you can get in touch with us at halfmeasurespodcast.com or on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at halfmeasurespod. Also, a special shout out to our Patreon producers, Trisha Brady and Samara King. Um, if you too would like to become a patron of the show, then you can find those details in the show notes below. And of course, a special shout out to Jack Black for liking our social media content. Epic stuff. Until next week, everyone. Adios.